in as he delivers it, Lord, that you would uphold and sustain him with your mighty right hand, and that you would do the same with us. Lord, would you uphold us this Advent season? Would you carry us through? Lord, you know the places of our need, and Lord, we thank you that you see them, and Lord, that you meet our every need in yourself. Lord, thank you for being our all-sufficient Christ. Lord, this we, we bring before your name, and it is in your name we pray. Amen. And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in Luke 19, and as has been mentioned, today is the first Sunday in Advent, and our theme for Advent comes from this passage in Luke where it says, Today, salvation has come to this house. So we're talking about the coming of salvation, coming uh, to this house. And each week we're going to have pretty familiar passages. And what I want to do each week is just hold up the passages. And you can uh, think, of, think of me almost like a tour guide, just walking you through the passages and pointing out different things. Do you notice? Do you see? Look there at this salvation. Or to change the metaphor and image, you can almost think about each passage, each verse in each passage is like a different house that's been decorated for Christmas. And we'll go by each one and just pointing out the different lights that you can see in this passage that shine a light, that point to the, the salvation that we celebrate as coming. So we're starting in what might be, you might think is an unusual place, but we're starting in Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus. So the way this unifies is we began this whole series in August that was running to, to now on experiencing the transforming power of the gospel. And we began with Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus was the blind beggar who Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Blind and wants to see. Zacchaeus is blind. Uh, or Zacchaeus can't see. But something is keeping him from the ability to see. He wants to see Jesus. So let's read it and then we'll go back and walk through it. So he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So every Advent, that's what we celebrate, that the Son of Man, He came. Why did He come? To seek and save the lost. So let's just tiptoe through the verse and see what we can see. So verse 1, He entered Jericho and was passing through. So setting up the context, He's going into Jericho. He's been uh, on the other side of the Jordan, and He's passing through Jericho, going to Bethany. But don't pass over that too quickly. He entered into Jericho. And so it is a cursed place. 
And yet Jesus is still willing to enter in and to pass through. He has come to reverse the effects of the curse as far as they are found. So he's going right in. He's passing through. And sometimes it's kind of hard to put together the timing, but he's passing through on the way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Bethany, and he's actually on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. So as he's passing through, he pauses. And so you have these two interesting miracles where both Jesus comes and he calls out both by name, Lazarus, come forth, Zacchaeus, come down. And in both cases, someone is brought from death to life as he comes. You might think, I wonder which one is more stunning, which one is more dramatic. But if you remember the story of Lazarus, remember how his sisters, Mary and Martha, are uh, in angst because they've sent message for uh, Jesus to come and he delays and he waits. And then when Jesus finally gets there, they uh, critique him, they challenge him. If you had been here, our brother would still be alive. But maybe if he had come when they wanted him to, Zacchaeus wouldn't. And so they couldn't see, they, all they could see was Jesus' delay. He's not where we want him to be. He's not where we think he should be. But they didn't realize that he was doing something somewhere else. So maybe you're in a season of life where you're feeling impatient. You want Jesus to act and to move. And perhaps he's doing something in the background that you can't see. So he's passing through Jericho. And, uh, and then there's a man. So verse 2 sets up our kind of key character. There was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. So we're given his name, common Jewish name, kind of like Zach, Zachai, uh, Zachary, Zacchaeus. We're given his occupation. He's a tax collector, but not just any tax collector. He's the, the chief tax collector. So you have a wealthy city like Jericho. It was one of the three major city centers for collecting Roman taxes at that time. Um, so not surprisingly, uh, Zacchaeus had become fabulously wealthy being the chief tax collector there. And, and you know, you can see he's the chief. That means in some sense he's like the ultimate uh, middleman. He can skim the proceeds off the top from the customs revenue that's going on the way to Rome. So you can kind of think of him, he's kind of like the, the kingpin of the Jericho tax uh, cartel. And as a general rule, tax collectors were swindlers, they were cheats, thus they were regarded by their own people as traitors. This explains why he was so unpopular, why no one wanted to give him room when he wants to see Jesus. When we see Zacchaeus, we almost have to conceptualize it like, uh, the say there's a parade in downtown Orlando, and the mayor wants to see the parade, but nobody's making room for him. They're, they're, they're elbowing bowing him out. So he's got to run and kind of climb up a lamp pole to be able to see. So this is somebody, he's, he's not liked 
One commentator said that among the Jews, it was an unheard of thing for a rabbi or any other religious leader to lower himself. It's one of the key themes to rise up and go down, rise up. But unheard of for a rabbi to lower himself to enter into the house of a publican or a, a tax collector. So they were greatly offended at Jesus allowing himself to be entertained in the house of Zacchaeus, a prominent member of this despised class. But notice, he's, he's given a name, he's personalized, but from the, the crowd's perspective, he in many ways is kind of public enemy number one. He would have been the ultimate object of their projection. You know, often as public figures, we project onto them our own angst, our own anger, our own frustration. So that's why politicians often receive the angst and the anger of the people. It can be projected onto them. He would have received all that. Zacchaeus would have been the embodiment of the man, the man who's oppressing them. So he'd have been despised and, and hated. And the question is, like, how could Jesus associate with him? How could he share table fellowship with him? The common idea is that if you eat with someone, you're, you're, you're together with them. So if you eat with a criminal, you're, you're an associate. You're an accomplice. And so that's why they grumble in verse 7. He's gone to be the guest of the man. I don't even name him. That man who is a sinner. And the theme of the story and what we need to see about Christmas and what they fail to see here is that salvation is for sinners. Jesus came for the outcast. He came for the outsiders. He came for the swindlers and the thieves and the cheats. In fact, at the end of the passage, we begin to see that Zacchaeus is the very person that Jesus needs to be eating with, the very kind of low life that he's going to associate with. And the glory of the gospel is that if he came to save sinners and if he came to eat with people like Zacchaeus, that means he's willing to eat with people like us. That means he's willing to eat with people like the pompous, self-righteous ones in the crowd. See, what they didn't understand is that he came not to um, condone Zacchaeus' sin, but to offer him the fellowship of the forgiven. You want a good line about what the church is. It's the fellowship of the forgiven. And that's what he's come to, to, to offer. So they, they have a very strong sense that this man is a sinner, but not us. We're not. When I was a children's minister, one of the kids in our children's ministry, his name was Mason. And Mason was quite the character. I still have a scar on my hand I can show you from where he stabbed me with a pencil. And Mason was one of those little boys that needed uh, like anything you could do just to kind of, You couldn't control him. Containment was the only, um, uh, the only goal. And so often he would be sitting. The only way I could get him to pay attention to what I was teaching, and five minutes was the goal. If we got five minutes, that is uh, just victory. And often he would be inverted in his seat with his head bobbling and his feet kicking in the air. And that's the only way he could stay focused. And one Sunday we were talking about how um, we're all sinners. And we're all sinners, every one of us. And before I could even finish the sentence, he had inverted himself and was standing in the chair and was pointing a finger at me, ready to fight. And I came from kind of a rural honor culture, so you don't insult people. Ready to fight. And he says, my granddaddy is no sinner. 
And I was kind of taken, I was like, whoa, I mean, I know your granddaddy. He's a wonderful, godly man. And before I could kind of engage, he had slid back down and started giggling and says, but my daddy, whoa, he's a bad sitter. (laughs) And I went to high school with his dad, and he's right. (laughs) But the beauty of the gospel that we got to talk about is if his granddaddy was in here, he would even tell him, Mason, no, the glory of the gospel is that I'm a bad sinner too. There's no, he's a bad sinner, I'm not. That demarcation, it came and it's leveled. And this is the problem that they're doing. They're saying, oh, there's the bad sinner, but not us. And then notice how who Jesus has come for. Look at verse 3 as he moves on. So look at Zacchaeus' desire. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. That's his desire, just like Bartimaeus. He wanted to see. He wanted to see Jesus. That was his desire. And we don't know why. Was he just curious? Was he aching? Did he know that uh, even in the midst of his political success and his lavish material success, that there was something just not fulfilling? He wanted to see Jesus. And think about how different would your life be if that was the controlling desire More than anything else, I want to see Jesus. But the two problems. One, the problem of the crowd. The crowd, he's despised by them, so they're not going to help him see Jesus. And then he's small in stature. I don't know if you have in the back of your mind the, the song that maybe you learned when, if you went to VBS as a kid, but about Zacchaeus being the wee little man. The wee little man was he. So he's small in stature. So first the crowd, that's a problem. That was Bartimaeus' problem too. He wanted to see Jesus and crying out as the disciples kind of led the crowd to keep them away. But here the crowd is keeping them. But then he's small of stature. Now it's interesting, the Bible very rarely gives us physical descriptions. And we know almost nothing about what Jesus looked like, what Peter looked like, Paul. He gives very minimal physical descriptions. Because for the most part, from his perspective, it's not important. When it does, it's trying to illustrate some other truth. And often the physical illustrates the spiritual. And his problem is that he's small. But the, the question in this passage is, who are the real small ones? Just like with Bartimaeus, who's really blind? He knows who Jesus is. He's actually not the blind one. Who are the small ones? And maybe his real smallness up until that point is just smallness of ambition, smallness of soul. But the problem here is the town, the crowd. They're the, they're the small ones, but he can't see. So what does he do? Look at verse 4. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. This a remarkable act of humility. I mean, this is somebody in an honor-shame culture. You would not undignify yourself this way. Not only is he small in stature, but he acts like a little boy. He's going to do what a little boy is going to do. He runs ahead, he climbs up the tree, and he wants to see. I mean, just like David, when David's bringing the art back and he runs ahead of it and dances, he He's not uh, afraid to undignify himself. His humility. He's willing to take pains and to go after and to run and to seek. And if you're going to experience this Christmas, the, the power of salvation, maybe you need to climb up a tree or two. 
Maybe there's something you need to do to, to, to put down the pride and lose the, the dignity that might be keeping you from him. About five years ago, we had uh, Disney passes, and it was at the time, the girls, our two girls, they were 10 and 9, they were 5 and 4, and they were full-on princess stage. And uh, at the time, the worship team would always meet on Wednesdays at our house to rehearse, and so my role and responsibility was to take the kids out of the house. And so I would take the girls every Wednesday afternoon to Disney, and one of my great fears was always that I was going to lose one of them. So it was always kind of an anxious time for me, because I just could imagine the scene of coming home without one of them. And uh, one day, part of our routine, I mean, we had our little routes already marked and with the parks and nothing. We'd go to Hollywood Studios and we'd always go. It was always, we'd go to the Frozen show first and then we'd go to the Beauty and the Beast show, then the Little Mermaid show. We'd just kind of hit up our, our shows. And... Uh, one day, we were at the Frozen show, and this is right in the midst of kind of all of Elsa and Anna's kind of social glory. And um, the, the show was happening, and then Annabelle was sitting next to me, and we were next to another couple, and there was a, another dad, and he was just fully into the show. And he knew every word to every song and he was fully engaged in singing. And the whole, like the whole time we were sitting there, first Annabelle's all snuggled up next to me. And then she sees him engaged in singing. And each song she's scooting a little closer, a little close. And by the end of it, she's almost like laying in his lap. Like I'd love you and wish you were my dad. And, and like we get up to leave and she starts to walk walk away with them. <laughs> and I told her, like, I have been afraid that I'm going to lose one of my children at Disney. I never thought they would willingly go with someone else. <laughs> and then Cynthia said, well, you know the words to all the songs. Why didn't you sing? <laughs> Why didn't I sing along? Because <laughs> I am a grown man and I have dignity. That's why I'm not going to sit there celebrating Coronation Day in summer. <laughs> And she laughs, it's not your dignity, it's your pride. You don't have dignity, you have pride. And that might lose you your daughter at Disney. What is your pride costing you? You know, here, he's not going to let his pride cost him a chance to see Jesus. And so he's going to act like a little boy. He's going to run and he's going to climb up the tree. I read on Psychology Today's Twitter account this week. They tweeted out that the average three-year-old will laugh 40 times a day. Anybody want to take a guess how often the average 40-year-old will laugh? Three. So maybe there's certain things that we need to be childlike. He's not going to let his dignity keeping him from seeing Jesus. And then notice Jesus' response in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus came to the place where he was. He's going to meet you. You want to see him. He'll come. He'll meet you where you are, but he won't leave you there. He'll meet you. Jesus saw him. He wanted to see Jesus, but the whole thing begins because Jesus sees him. So Jesus saw him, and Jesus stopped. He says, I must stay with you. I need to stay in your house. 
And remember, he's on his way to heal Lazarus. He's on his way to initiate the most important week in the history of the world. But he's got time to stop and to stay with him. And then, I love it, he invites himself over for dinner. I must come to your house today. And those words is, I must, it's actually the word which we translate abide. I must abide in your house today, he commands them. And here Jesus is doing immeasurably more than all Zacchaeus could ask or think. He just wants a glimpse, but then he gets uh, a dinner invitation, and Jesus is going to honor him and his house and encourage him, and the great mercy of Jesus of just barging right in, not waiting for the invitation. He's barging right in. And then notice Zacchaeus' response in verse 6. So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. He hurried, he came down, he received him joyfully. He came down. He humbled himself and came down. He didn't stay high and lifted up. He didn't say, uh, no, I'm good. This tree is comfortable. You just you kind of go on. He comes down, came off and down and then hurried and received him joyfully. And the evidence that he had received, in essence, Jesus into his heart is that he opens up his home to him. And there's this beautiful order where Jesus stops, calls, Zacchaeus joyfully responds, and then is lavish in his generosity. It all comes flowing. But the first great evidence that salvation has come to his house is the way he joyfully receives Jesus. And then notice the response of the crowd in verse 7. The small, Matthew Henry called him the small-minded, narrow-souled response. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So the critics start chirping. They're offended. You know, that word, they all grumbled. That same word used all throughout the wilderness generation in Numbers as they're going through the wilderness, and Israel began to murmur. They began to grumble. They began to complain. And so often it's kind of this low-level mumbling or murmuring, scoffing, the rolling of the eyes. And it's wonder, I wonder how loud they said these things. He's gone in to be the guest of that man. You know, Jesus had dignified him by calling him his name. Jesus knew his name, but they refused to say his name, that man. And then notice Zacchaeus' response in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And so it's fascinating. I'd always kind of pictured this as Zacchaeus standing up and saying that into the presence of Jesus with his disciples at the feast in his house. But it seems to be connected to somehow the grumbling and complaints of the crowd. So it does make you wonder, where did he say it? What initiated it? What, res what initiated this response? Was it because he was just overwhelmed by the mercy of Jesus to come to him? Or does he hear the murmuring and complaining and the grumbling of the crowd? Does he say it only to Jesus or does everybody hear? Does he stand up and make a public declaration to everyone that this is what he's going to do? And you see here it's remarkable, the second great evidence of salvation Repentance is displayed by his eagerness to bring restitution. Funny, he says, I give half of my goods to the poor. You know, the Old Testament law wanted 10% part of the tithe, but he's going to give half this overabundance, this
overwhelming generosity. And then it's interesting, he says, if, if I have defrauded anyone. It's intriguing, like, if? It's like, hmm, like, was he not sure? Did he, did he not know where his, all his wealth came from? And maybe, I mean, as the chief tax collector, he wasn't the one kind of doing the down and dirty business of collecting it. Maybe he just always operated on a principle of just intentional ignorance. And then now he's going to find out. He's going to initiate. He's going to take ownership. So first step, I'm going to give away half. Second step, full restitution. What's fascinating is Exodus 22, uh, when you had stolen something, you returned it twofold. So that restitution was twofold, unless it was an animal, and animals were fourfold. And so he's going kind of the full hog, as we'd say in the South. So he experiences this lavish grace, uh, or expresses lavish grace in the very area of his deepest sin. And then notice Jesus celebrates, and Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also was a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, so we're thinking about how could Zacchaeus do such a thing? I mean, in many ways, he's deliberately, intentionally, and joyfully, fully impoverishing himself. I mean, to, to, to make good on this vow would have cost him a fortune. And Luke loves to pair these things, and this is paired in chapter 18 with the, another religious leader who comes and asks Jesus about eternal life. And Jesus says, you know the commandments, obey them. And he says, I have kept them all since my youth. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and come follow me. And it says he couldn't because he was wealthy. And the disciples say, well, then if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible and then here, the, almost the very next story, we have this remarkable story of this miracle. This miracle of grace. This miracle of transformation. And what Luke wants to show you all throughout, that you see Jesus. He's seeking and he's saving the lost or he's seeking them. But where does the power come to be able to do something like this? It's impossible with man, but where does it come and what do we celebrate in Advent? We celebrate that he came to seek the lost. And on Easter, we celebrate how he came to save the lost. And so what Zacchaeus doesn't know is just in a few days, he's going to see, they're going to see Jesus. You know, Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from a tree to experience salvation. And a few short days, Jesus is going to ascend up a tree to purchase that salvation. And so Zacchaeus' call and the same as our call, we're called to be repentant believers who never stop trusting in the saving power of the crucified Christ. The power and the grace to repent comes through the cross. And the cross is where Jesus was hung in between two thieves so he could bring salvation to this thief and all of us other sinners. I heard Phil Riken tell a story about this passage that I think would interest uh, and be intriguing to some of you. But he tells a story about uh, some Wycliffe Bible translators who are working in a, a rural area in Brazil. And they were translating the book of Luke into... 
Mamanade, Mamanadi, I'm going to totally butcher that pronunciation, but they're translating that into that language. And then once they got it translated, they were working with a team from the Jesus film who was there, and they were had the audio techs who were uh, taking the language and dubbing the, the audio so they could impose it on the Jesus film. And as they were starting the recording soundtrack, when it came time to record chapter 19, it says that the only man they could find to read the part of Zacchaeus was someone who was known in the town as kind of the town, they call him the town scoundrel, kind of the town cheat who everybody knew he was always uh, stealing and manipulating and taking advantage of the, the Westerners and the missionaries every, and everyone else. And so <clears throat> this man uh, was the only one they could get to record the part of Zacchaeus. And as he was reading through the story, he couldn't bring himself to, even as acting as Zacchaeus, to say the words, if I have stolen anything, I will repay. And he refused to say I. And he kept saying, if he stole anything. And then there was this kind of almost comical back and forth. Because I said, no, you read it wrong. It should be if I. So I didn't read it wrong. It's, it's right. This is right. And, and they couldn't get him to just say, if I have stolen anything, I will repay. And had to go back and forth. Well, finally, somehow they cleaned it up. Maybe it was one of those funny, like, sound over dubs where, you know, inserted an I and cut it out. But somehow they got it cleaned up. And then when the recording was finished, the entire village crowded into the school to see the film. And every, that's how Riken said, every eye was glued to the screen for the entire, entire two hours. And then toward the end, when the film showed Jesus struggling under the heavy cross, showing the price that he paid for our sins, that man who had read the part of Zacchaeus was seen in the middle of the crowd with tears streaming down his face, crying out for mercy and salvation. And at that moment, that man's thieving heart was so touched by what he saw Jesus endure for him. He was transformed by the Savior who died for his sins. That's where we find the power and the grace to repent. By seeing the sacrifice he made on the cross. By believing that he did it for us and will do it for anyone who comes to him and repents. What Luke is celebrating here and what he's telling us is today... Salvation has come to this house. And what that means is salvation comes everywhere Jesus is present. He doesn't just come to point us to the way of salvation. He is salvation. And what he tells Zacchaeus and all of us is that you cannot save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. But what I'm going to do is to save you. And you must repent and rest in me. And every week we celebrate communion because communion is our physical, tangible reminder is that he is present. And this is how salvation has come to his house, into his world. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and remember to me.
Lord, I praise you for the gift of your mercy. We praise you for the gift of salvation. We pray that as we begin this Christmas season and all of the uh, many things that can compete for our affection and our attention, that above all things, we would remember that today salvation has come. And so I ask that we all, everyone in here would know what it means to experience the salvation, no matter who they are of what they've done. If you came to save someone like Zacchaeus, you will save any one of us. And then I pray that everyone here will not only experience it, but we will live in it and live out of that joy. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.